uh, just as a kind of a quick announcement reminder that Pastor John is in Florida uh, on a great vacation with family, so we pray for his safety and safe return. But uh, with him out of town, I get the, uh, the privilege, the honor to come and bring the word to you this morning. And so I would ask that you would help me by joining me here in prayer and asking that it would be God's word that would grip us today, not anything I would say but that it would be God communicating with our souls through His Word, through this true story. So would you join me in prayer? Lord, I ask for your help. I ask for your wisdom. And would you come and and speak to us through your Word? Would it come alive in our hearts and minds? Would you bring encouragement to the downtrodden and depressed? Would you bring wisdom and comfort to the confused? Would you bring truth to those that are caught in lies? And Lord, may only truth be spoken today and only truth be heard. May anything that is frivolous or extra just fall off and out of our ears, out of our memories. But may we all, myself included, leave here knowing more of you, loving more of you, And Lord, may you be glorified this morning. Amen. Well, I'm going to start with a quick little confession. It's not really much of a confession, just a truth. I am not a chef. Uh, My family would back this up. If it's not in a box that comes with directions, if it's not microwavable or there's simple one, two, three ingredients, then I'm kind of useless in the kitchen. We have so many kitchen gadgets in our house that I have no idea how to use or when to use them. And one said gadget is this, right? I actually know what it is. I know what it's used for, but to know when to use it, I'm not totally sure. So those that can see it, real pop quiz here on a Sunday morning, what is this? A meat tenderizer. Yeah, meat cleaver. It's used to beat meat and to make it soft, right? It's a tool designed to soften and to break apart the enzymes and the proteins and the meat fibers, loosening them up so it's easier to chew and digest. Because see, sometimes meat, it can be hard or chewy, and so, like the name suggests, it needs to be tenderized. Now, I don't use it often, but if there is a chef in the room that knows what they're doing, they would hand me this tool and say, hey, here's some chicken. I want you to go smack it on the counter. Now I'm having fun as a chef, right? I know how to do that. I can tenderize that meat like the best of them. But only if the meat's already there, right? We, we tenderize meat, and in the process, it's fun for me, the chef, probably not so fun for the meat. But at this point in the meat's life journey, it doesn't feel any pain, But what if we were to take a meat tenderizer and say, I'm going to go tenderize the meat while it's still connected to the animal. Like, come here, cow. And then we're just like, what are you doing? I'm tenderizing my meat for a future meal. No, you'd be seen as cruel, right? If you're just chasing a chicken around with a meat tenderizer, somebody's going to lock you up. Because, I think we know intuitively, to tenderize something would include a little bit of pain, maybe even a lot of pain, to say that something has been made tender, 
There's pain associated with it. So when we say that someone has a tender heart or a tender spirit, what we're trying to communicate is that they are soft. They're pliable. They're maybe easygoing. They're compassionate, patient, kind, full of grace and mercy. The opposite of the tender heart would be the hard heart. Immovable, stubborn, frustrated. And it would probably not surprise us that even in a tender heart, there was either a pain that brought them to that point, or that tender heart would put them in situations of pain. Well, this morning, I really have one point. So if you're following along, the kids and those handouts, instead of three points that are nice conveniently there, I just have one for us today. And that is that the Lord has a tender heart towards you. The Lord has a tender heart. I want that thought swirling around your mind today. Conversations at lunch or maybe as you're going to sleep tonight, would you just dwell on this truth? That God has a tender heart towards you. See, I think it's really important that we think about God rightly. Because it's very easy for us to slip into these maybe half-truths or incomplete truths where we think of God as too small or limited in some way. We're tempted by the world's descriptions of God. We're tempted by our own ways of creating God to be more like us, more like the way we imagine Him. But when we are confronted with the Word of God and God Himself tells us what He is like, we had better pay attention. We had better listen to God's own description of Himself. Back in the 70s, an author, A.W. Tozer, many of you have probably heard of him, great Christian writer, he said this, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God himself. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. So this morning, what is our idea of God? I'd like us to picture God the way that He presents Himself. And we will spend the rest of eternity creating this full picture of God. So I truly admit that this morning we're not going to cover every angle of God. But I want us to take a little snapshot of one way in which God describes Himself. And that again is that He says He has a tender heart and He cares for you. So to help us see this tender heart of God, we're going to look at the Old Testament book of Hosea. So I encourage you to turn there in your Bibles to Hosea chapter 11. Hosea chapter 11. If you're in one of those church Bibles that's in the chairs, it's on page 757, if that's helpful. 757. And if you get totally lost, most Bibles do have a table of contents. So Hosea chapter 11. 
11. And earlier this week, I mentioned to John, he was asking, so what are you going to be preaching on? What's, what's the topic? And we kind of discussed it a little bit. I said, well, I'm thinking about going through Hosea. And he looks at me and he goes, oh, you love that book, don't you? And I said, yes. Yes, I do. I love the story of Hosea. Uh, it's probably the empathetic, compassionate, just kind of emotional, blubbering kind of guy that I am that connects with the compassion and sympathy and empathy of Hosea. Well, as you're in 11, we will use that as our main text, but let, it, let me set it up for us and bring us into the context of this book. Hosea is written to the nation of Israel, right? The northern kingdom after the kingdom splits. Hosea was a prophet. And in the first three chapters of Hosea, God uses the prophet as a living parable, an example for the people to see something that he wanted to teach them. God wanted to paint a picture with Hosea's life. So he tells Hosea, I want you to go marry a woman who is a prostitute. She will be unfaithful to you, I promise. And so Hosea goes and he marries Gomer and has a number of children that may or may not be Hosea's. And then after a certain season, Gomer leaves her family, leaves her husband, and she pursues a life of prostitution and unfaithfulness. And then God comes to Hosea in chapter 3 and tells him to go and buy back his own wife out of the life of prostitution and to bring her home. In fact, here's what it says in Hosea 3. Listen to this line. God says to Hosea, Go again. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So here, God is connecting with the emotional pain of Hosea having to go pay the price to bring back his own wife. Even though she doesn't deserve it, she hasn't asked for it, she pursued this life of unfaithfulness. She pursued this life away from Hosea, abandoning her children, abandoning her husband. And then Hosea is commanded by God not just to go get her, but did you hear what God says to him? Go love her again. Love her again. Love her. Don't just redeem her and bring her back into the house as some unfaithful wife that God commands you to put up with. God tells Hosea to love her. Don't just walk around giving her disapproving looks and always kind of judging her for those past sins, bringing them up when it's convenient. Oh, you don't want to do the dishes today? Hey, you know you cheated on me, right? I thought so. Let's get to work. That is not the attitude that Hosea was to have. He was to love her again. And God identifies with Hosea and says, Just as you love an unfaithful woman, so I love an unfaithful people, my people Israel. And by extension, I think he also says he loves us more unfaithful people. And after a season there when Hosea brings back his wife, they rename his kids, which is an incredible story. You should go read it when you have a chance. And God then goes into a prophetic kind of tirade 
towards the people of Israel, chapters 4 through 10 are filled with some harsh judgments against sin and some really frightening things that God says. He has a righteous anger towards Israel's unfaithfulness. It's hard to read, but they worship false idols. It is what they deserve. That's that reference to they love cakes of raisins. It's not just that God is against fruitcake, but maybe, I don't know. You could use that at Christmas time. Don't send me a fruitcake. It says in Hosea, God doesn't like cakes with raisins in it. But it's about idol worship. They would make these offerings to these false gods, and God says, you're abandoning me, and so there will be judgment. But then we get to chapter 11, where we're going to read this this morning, where it seems as if even after this story is unfolded, even after God has pronounced judgments and wrath to come, God lays out his heart even for these people in Israel. And so join me in reading chapter 11, starting in verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms. But they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, He shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Admah? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. See, in this passage, Ephraim, Israel, same name, or different names, same people. It's like saying you're from the United States. Oh yeah, I'm an American. It's kind of like the same idea. Ephraim, Israel's interchangeable at times. And here God says about Israel, he personifies Israel, Ephraim, as a person. And says in the very beginning, I loved you as a child. So not just the husband-wife illustration, but now God's bringing it into the home and says, you are like my son. From the beginning, God loved Israel. The foundation of their relationship was God's love. It is not that Israel deserved God to love them. They didn't earn this place, earn this tenderness. No, it was His love that started it. It's His love that was the foundation and gave birth to Israel to become His child. 
It's not that God lined up Israel amongst all the other nations and Israel outperformed the other ones, so God says, yes, now you will be mine. No, the foundation is the Lord's love. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And then God, he kind of puts himself on the floor with Israel and says, when Israel learned to walk, I was there. Not just watching, but teaching and instructing and helping. It's this intimate picture of of God sitting on the floor with His child, encouraging them on. Have you ever done this with a a child where they can almost kind of walk and they're holding onto the coffee table, their legs are all wobbly, and they just go, oh, and they fall down. And you're like, oh, you're so close, you can get it. This is that intimacy that God has with Israel. And He picks him up and puts him back, says, try again, try again. And Israel starts walking. And as soon as Israel can start walking on his own, where does he go? Boom. He runs away from the Lord. The one who has taught him how to walk. And then Israel abandons his God. The more that God called Israel, the more they went away. There's that heartache of the parent saying, hey, come back, little one. Come back. Come back to my arms. Come to me. And then that little kid looking back with that evil smirk that we all know our children have when they know they're about to do something wrong. And then they just run headlong into danger. Run right out into traffic. Right into the crowd where they're going to get lost. Right over the cliff. And God is there with this broken heart. As soon as Ephraim learned to walk, he ran away. And then in verse 3, look at that one again. That even though he taught him to walk, he took him up by the arms, but they did not know that I healed them. It's as if Ephraim was running away and you've got this picture of this child about to run over the edge of a cliff and the dad quickly scooping them up and grabbing them back, pulling them to safety. But the kid is completely clueless. You've ever seen those children do the kind of the wiggle squirms that you can't hold on? They're like, you can't pick me up. You know, like, no, I want to go my own way. You're right next to a cliff to fall to certain doom. And the child is fighting with you for freedom to run into danger. And God is like, no, no, I picked him up. I healed him. I was protecting him. But he didn't even know it. Didn't even care. Didn't even matter. Now, we can kind of think it's fun for two- and three-year-olds. But imagine the pain, and some of you know this as parents. You've felt that heartache when it's a teenager who has the same kind of attitude and behavior. It's not so funny anymore when this child who you've loved, you've nurtured, you've taught to walk, to talk, to read, to write, how to live. And you've loved them and you continue to love them with every inch of your heart. You would do anything for them. And then they look at you one day and say, I hate you. I don't want anything to do with you. I wish you were dead. I want new parents. My friends have better parents than you are. At least they seem to care about their kids. I don't think you care about me at all. How much does that hurt? And then the more you try and love them, the faster they run away. And then the image here is as if they go out, they get in trouble, they're in jail, and you go bail them out. 
and they don't even care. They're so ungrateful, and they seem to know that they think that you don't even care. This is the feeling that God wants you to step into. This is how his heart feels towards his people. He loves them, and yet he is brokenhearted because they're chasing after idols. But when the people are faithless, God is faithful. Look again at verse 4. Here's what God says, I I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. See, when we fail, when we are faithless, when we chase after the idols in our lives, what do you imagine God's response to you would be? Do you see God in your mind's eye filled with wrath? Filled with judgment, with disapproving looks where he just sees your sin. He shakes his head and says, how dare you, how could you? Full of a righteous anger, wanting to destroy you and I. Now, does God have justified wrath towards sin? Absolutely. Absolutely he does. He is a just and holy God. Just look at the previous 10 chapters of Hosea. Read any of the other prophets. You will see a God who does not treat sin lightly. He does not see rebellion as no big deal. He does not see idol worship as something to overlook. No, he has full justified wrath towards sin. But we cannot minimize God and say that that is all that he feels. Because at the same time that that wrath is bubbling up for that sin and unrighteousness, the Lord's heart is still tender towards you. The Lord was leading the people in Hosea's day and they were rejecting him. The Lord comes to us today and often we reject him. It's what we've been doing as people since the beginning. In fact, if the Israelites were to look past or look back into their past, into their history, they could have seen in Exodus how this had played out time and time again with the people of God and the Lord. Think of the story when Moses leads the people through the Red Sea and they get onto the other side and he goes up the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. And, and then God is speaking with Moses and setting up his people. And what are the people doing down below with Aaron? They're creating a golden calf, an idol to worship. And so God comes and sends Moses down, and the judgment that comes, I've always thought that the judgments against the people, I mean, he sent fiery serpents, plagues, the earth swallowed people whole because of their rebellion. But this particular judgment, I've always felt was a little bit like, almost like the worst, because I I just couldn't imagine doing this. God commands Moses. He says, Moses, I want you to call people. And he calls the Levites. And and they come back to Moses. And so he says, everyone grab your sword. And I want you to run through the camp. And the command from the Lord because of the sin of the golden calf is for you just to kill your neighbors. Kill your brothers. Kill your family members. Just go through the camp and start killing people with the sword. Like, I don't know if I could have done that if I was a Levite. 
You just run next door to mom's house and stab her? Like that, you don't just do that. But that's the judgment because of sin. And with the blood of that judgment still wet on Moses' robes, he meets with the Lord and he says, Lord, let me see your glory. Let me know who you are. We want you to go with us. Please don't abandon us and leave us because of our idolatry and sin. But I want to know who it is that goes with us. Let me see your glory. And in Exodus 34, God gives us another description of who he is. He tells us his name. He shows us his glory. So with the just wrath just taking place, listen to how God describes himself in Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation." This is who God says He is. It's His name, His glory, filled with grace and mercy and compassion, a forgiving God. He's a God who loves with eternal faithfulness. A God who loves full of grace and mercy. And like our passage here in Hosea says, He is a God who treats us with kindness and love, easing the yoke on our bodies that burden that we, care, that we carry because of our sin. See, I wonder if Jesus had this passage in Hosea and this image in mind when he said this in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, do you know that this is the only time in all of the New Testament where Jesus describes his own heart? There's a lot of descriptions of what Jesus does, what Jesus says. But here Jesus says, my heart is gentle and lowly. The heart was seen in his day more than just the emotional center of one's person. It's like the core of who you are. It's what you are at your most base level. And what Jesus is saying is, what comes from the most inner part of me is gentleness, humility, lowliness. My yoke is easy, and I call you to come to me. Jesus is God in the flesh. He is a heart of tenderness with feet and hands. Jesus came to be this tender heart to us. Jesus, He did show God's judgment against sin. You can even read those stories as well. Once again, it's not that God doesn't care about sin. Jesus is overturning tables in the temple. He's pronouncing woes against the Pharisees and religious leaders, calling them snakes and hypocrites. He even tells Peter, his own disciple, hey, get behind me, Satan, because Peter did not have the mission of God in mind. And yet, Jesus was soft and gentle 
and would go to the vilest of sinners and those that were the furthest from the Lord, and he would call them home. And he would even look down at the soldiers that nailed him to the cross and say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus was gentle and loving. In Matthew 23, Jesus delivers a series of judgments against the scribes and the Pharisees. But the way that that chapter ends, after woe, woe is you, woe is you, woe is you, then the heart of Jesus comes out. And he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you would not. See, like a mother hen, Jesus describes himself saying, oh, I need to protect my chicks and spreads her wings out and brings her chicks nice and close to protect them from danger. That's how Jesus' heart was reaching out to the people of Jerusalem who he knew were going to crucify him, were going to betray him, were going to shout insults at him. And yet he says, ah, I just long for you to come under my protective shepherding. And yet they would not. And that's where we have Hosea's chapter 11, verses 6. And five and six, excuse me, five and six. In chapter 11, you get this judgment against the people because they would not return back to the Lord. So God says, All right, but you're not going to go to slavery in Egypt. You're going to go to the slavery in Assyria. It is not going to go well with you. There's going to be the sword raging against your cities. You're going to be devoured where you're at. There's judgment, there are consequences to your sin. But the heartbreak of the Lord comes in verse 7 and 8. Let me read that again for us. See if you can identify with the people of Israel here. God says, My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, He shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. See, don't you think that we are bent on turning away from the Lord as well? And yet the, the Lord, He recoils from the wrath that is deserved for us. You can feel that like you're reaching out and you touch a hot stove and then there's the quick instant pullback because of the pain. That's the image that God is giving where he's about to pour out this judgment and wrath against Israel. But then he he pulls back. How can I do that? The pain associated with his tender heart. God feels it. So he's like, I'm not going to treat you like Admon and Zeboim, which were two cities next to Sodom and Gomorrah. So when Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed and utterly wiped off the planet, Admon and Zeboim were right there. They're the same judgment. And God says, I will not destroy you like that because my compassion grows warm and tender. And then you get to verse 9. Here's what he will do. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man. 
the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. How can this be? How can God deal justly with sin and treat it seriously and have real judgment for real rebellion? How does He deal with the evil inside of us and yet have a tender heart for us? How can He not come in wrath? It is what we deserve. Well, it's because He comes as the Holy One in our midst, Emmanuel, Jesus Christ. And He came not in wrath, but He came to forgive Jesus said it himself in John 12. He says, I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. So just as Hosea loved his wife and paid the price to bring her home and love her again, So the Lord loves His own and pays the price to bring us home and love us again. He gave His life as a ransom for many. Jesus Christ was that wrath-averting, wrath-absorbing sacrifice, taking our sins upon Himself, becoming a curse and dying on a cross because He loves us. Because his heart is tender for us. Jesus even said it, Greater love has no one than this than to lay down your life for your friends. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ did for you and I. He laid down his life for us. And now he calls us friends. He calls us children. He calls us his own. We've been bought back with this price of pain that Jesus Christ gave on the cross. There is nothing more significant or powerful that Jesus could ever do to prove His love for you. He's already given all that there is to give. So the question left for us this morning is if God has this tender heart, if He leans into us even when we fail and run away and we continue to deserve judgment, what should be our response when we hear of God's tender, loving heart for us? Our response is simple. Believe it. Believe Him when He says He loves you. Trust in Him. So, Jolene and I, we started dating when we were 16 years old. And a few months into our relationship, again at 16, I remember saying to her, with all the sympathy and the biggest, you know, green eyes that I have, I love you. And her response, I'll never forget, because she looked right back at me and said, No, you don't. No, you don't. What am I supposed to do with that as a 16-year-old? How do you respond? Like, I go home and I'm like, you know, she's always been smarter than me. She's more mature. She figures it out. She probably knows me better than I know myself. She's probably right. Maybe I don't. But I can't now go back and say, you know what? You were right. I don't. I was just joking. Right? You can't. I'm stuck as the boyfriend. I have to keep saying I love you. Otherwise, it just messes it all up. But I would tell you that today, how I feel about her, 24 years into this relationship, if I could go back to my 16-year-old self, 
I'd probably say, you know what? You don't really love her. Not compared to how you feel about her today. You hardly know her. Just wait. Just wait until you get to know her better. Then your love will grow. See, the more you are able to know someone, the more you're able to love them. And I think when we think about God loving us, my temptation, and maybe it's yours as well, is to look up at God and I hear this message of how much He loves me. And I'm tempted to say, ah, no, I don't think you do. You may love other people. You may love me with like a general kind of love. But you don't really love me. No, you don't, God. No, you don't. But what am I really saying in that moment? I'm really saying that God doesn't know me. And maybe he's a liar? How could I possibly think that? In John 13, Jesus says this. Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus knows his own. His own people are the people that believe in him, that trust in his death on the cross as the forgiveness and payment for their sins. His own are the people that have surrendered to the Lord and trust in his forgiveness. Those are his own. And he says, I loved you when I came and I will love you to the end. We do not have the right to look back up at God and say, no, no, you don't. We have to believe it. Believe it that the Lord loves you. Think about our response, even as longtime Christians. When God says he loves you and we resist, are we saying that God doesn't know us, doesn't understand us? No. Think about this. God knows everything that could ever be known about you. He knows every temptation that you've conquered, every temptation that you've given into, every sin you've committed, even the ones that you've forgotten about. He knows every thought, every deed, every commandment broken or ignored. He knows it all. There is nothing you could say to surprise him, nothing you could ever do that would shock him, and nothing you could ever do or say that would change his heart for you. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ, so says Paul in Romans 8. And so when God says, I love you, believe it. Believe it, brothers and sisters. His heart is tender even towards you. Not because of you, but because it's what his heart is made of. It's who he is to have this tender heart even for sinners. So earlier I I read a quote from A.W. Tozer saying that what we think of God is the most important thing about us. Well, about 30 years before that, Another author named C.S. Lewis, many of you may know, not responding to Tozer, obviously, because he wrote it before, but to another similar sentiment, he writes this statement that I think will serve us well. Here's C.S. Lewis. I read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think of God. By God himself, it is not how God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of him is of no importance, except insofar as it is related to how he thinks of us. It is written that we shall stand before him, 
shall appear, shall be inspected. The promise of glory is the promise, almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ, that some of us, that any of us who really chooses, shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God. To please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness. To be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father in a son. It seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But so it is. I like what he says there. And isn't that a picture of our story in Hosea? God choosing us, not because of anything we have done or said or would become the potential inside of us. No, all we do is run away. All we are is unfaithful. And yet God loves us and he comes ever closer. And he grows ever more compassionate and tender the more we seem to kick and fight and run away. Jesus Christ paid the pain penalty because of that tender heart. And he died on the cross to rescue us, not so that we would just be pitied, but so that we would be loved. Right? It's this picture of Hosea, go love her again. Don't just bring her in, but love her again. God loves us still. See, we do not just slip into heaven because we prayed a prayer and now God owes us one. We followed the right steps, the right directions, and now God's bound by His Word to let us in. Which, I'll be honest, sometimes that is how I feel. Not really wanted by God. Maybe I think I've messed up too many times. I've failed in too many ways. I should have done this better. Should have said that a little differently. If God could see my inner thoughts and heart, then He would know I don't really deserve this gift that He's given. Of course I don't. Of course I don't. That's why it's grace. That's why it's mercy. See, I often thought I have confidence that I'm going to enter heaven. Confidence that I'll be there by the grace of God and the forgiveness of Christ. But this lagging fear in the back of my mind that says, yeah, I'm in, but I'm not really wanted there. It's difficult for me to think that I would ever be an ingredient in the divine happiness. That God would ever be pleased with me. That God would ever think of me as a father thinks of his son. And yet, my job is to believe it. Because that's what God says. My father, uh, he died when I was 17. But I will always know that he loved me. Not because I have a recording of his voice telling me he loves me that I can just play over and over again. But there are certain memories that stick out in my head of things that he did that just seem to prove that he would always love me. One particular story stands out as I was thinking about this. I don't know how old I was, elementary school of some, some age, and playing baseball. And it was a bad day. We had a bad game. We probably lost. But more than that, I think I had a bad attitude. And, and I probably said or did some things that uh, made my dad angry. And he disapproved of my actions and my attitude during the game. And I remember after, it, when it was all done, 
I was pretty grumpy. I remember like slamming my bag into the trunk and I was getting in. I got into the back seat of the car because see my dad, who was also the coach, was the one who was supposed to give me the ride home after the game. Now, I knew enough about my dad that I knew he wouldn't abandon me at the baseball field because he was so angry at me or because he was disappointed in my actions. He wasn't going to do that. But I still had this feeling of disconnect where I said, I'm going to sit as far away from him as possible. I know that I have upset him and disappointed him. And so I will sit in the back seat, hang my head low, and just try and disappear. I remember my dad getting in the front seat into the driver's seat. And he paused for a moment. Then he looks back at me. And here's what he said. You're still my son. I still love you. So get up and sit in the front seat next to me. He said, I'm no taxi driver just to take you home. You still belong to me. God is no taxi driver taking you to heaven. He says, come and sit next to me. Sit next to me for all of eternity because you are my son, you are my daughter, and I love you. You belong here. You are wanted here. And I find joy in your presence. And you will find joy in mine. This is the way God the Father thinks about us. So we are to believe it this morning. And I know I'm not alone sometimes thinking this way. That we know we're saved and yet we have this distance from God's love. I understand that we don't always feel it. We don't always know exactly what's going on. But just as when you walk through a valley and the mountain peaks block the sun as well as thick foliage of trees and it starts to become cold and dark and scary, remember this, that that valley does not change the intensity of the sun's warmth. It does not change the light coming from the sun's shining rays. It just changes your experience of it. See, the Lord's love for you is always shining bright. It has been shining since the beginning, and it will continue to shine forever. And one day we will step into that marvelous light, and we will experience full force the love that God has for us. But my prayer for us today is that as we walk through our individual valleys, may a beam of light that breaks through the clouds come and strike your face. And would you feel the love of God this morning? Would you know that his heart is tender towards you? Even in your rebellion and sin, he leans in and he paid the price to bring you close and hold you tight, and have you sit with him. God loves you. May you believe it and feel it today. May we all, no matter what valley we happen to be walking through. Let's pray. Lord, I 
I thank you, and I thank you for your tender heart of compassion and love. We do not deserve it. I do not deserve it. Lord, we know that we are unfaithful, just like Gomer, just like the Israelites of long ago. We could probably pick out our sins, our failings, and Lord, we could highlight those. And do they deserve your wrath and justice? Absolutely. And yet, Lord, in your love, by your grace alone, you have paid that price. And Lord, we give you praise for your Son, Jesus Christ, the one who is in our midst, who did not come in wrath, but came to forgive, who made a way for you to be just and the justifier. Lord, we thank you for that love. And I pray now specifically for all of us who know this to be true, and yet at times don't seem to feel it, don't seem to to bask in that loving brightness that you continually give off. Lord, would you break through the clouds, break through the leaves, come over the edge of the mountain, and may your love shine brightly in our hearts today. May we all feel and acknowledge it and just sit next to you in your love. This is what I pray, Lord. Amen.